So Lisa, uh, my wife, was not home this weekend. She was on the mountain. She is still on the mountain with her crazy tennis friends um, celebrating uh, a milestone birthday for the second weekend in a row. Uh, Julia is currently at home recovering from having four wisdom teeth pulled. And uh, just before, so on, on Friday, I was at work, and just before Lisa hit Red Grade Road, uh, she sent one last flurry of texts to me, which included the following sentences. Julie is doing well. I made more potatoes for her and gave her a mango and bananas. She's four. She's only going to take Tylenol and ibuprofen at this point. She's looking better. She might want to smoothie when you get home. <laughs> the chicken breast on the counter is for her. It's throwing. So I, I, I thought to myself, I thought to myself, okay, I'm, I'm a grown man. I can decipher this. I can get through this. Julie is probably Julia. I think I'm safe on that one. Uh, I know Julia isn't four. She's 18. So this must be a code. I'm thinking four out of 10 on the pain index because she's just been through surgery. Um, which means, you know, she won't have to make, take another hydrocodone, because one of those things was enough for her. Um, and then, you know, smoothie, chicken, throwing. So I texted back, I've got this, I'll throw together a chicken smoothie for Julia when I get home from work. <laughs> you know, you add a little Chick-fil-A sauce, maybe some potato salad, um, spinach, because you want to keep it healthy, right? You want to yeah, you've been to those fancy smoothie shops. If it lives in your fridge, it can go in a smoothie. I'm thinking, you know, chicken and hydrocodone smoothie. Um, flavor of the month for the Rock Youth coffee cart chicken smoothie. <laughs> Smoothies have no rules. Now, I don't blame uh, my wife one bit for the misunderstanding. I lay the blame uh, for the breakdown of the English language in general and the clarity of communication in particular squarely at the feet of Bill Gates, Mark Zuckerberg, and Steve Jobs. You know, God rest his soul. Um, I do not know in what black pit of research and development somebody decided to combine text to speech with autocorrect, but it can go straight back to that black pit. If you're on the worship team, you get texts from LaDonna. It's about the same caliber of experience. Um, Google Translate does not help. Little plug for worship team, if you want to join, you know, it's, it's fun. Um, so, Apparently, Julie was already full, not four, and the chicken was thawing. I'm not a monster. I would not feed either of my kids a chicken smoothie. That would just be wrong. But it highlights the challenges we sometimes run into with language. And this summer, as a church, we're moving through the longest psalm in the Bible, Psalm 119. Um, first of all, it's written in a different language, and it's written possibly... 3,000 years ago. Um, plus, it's poetry. 
Uh, so for guys, you know, it's almost automatic that you don't quite understand what's going on. Um, you know, it appeals a little more to the emotions, maybe. We might not catch everything the original author had in mind. Secondly, it's an acrostic poem, so it's written in uh, 22 sections, each section corresponding to a letter of the Hebrew alphabet. And each line of that section, starting with the same letter of the alphabet, that part simply can't translate into English. It just doesn't work. And so we kind of miss some of the benefits that would happen uh, for a Hebrew speaker to help you memorize this um, and uh, maybe remember some of the concepts that are in there. A third challenge comes from the fact that if you start each verse with the same letter, you sometimes limit the ways that you can develop a thought. You know, it's clever and it's catchy, but sometimes you end up using words that, um, you know, feel a little forced. Guys who've written poetry, you know how that works. Um, plus, each section is not, you know, entirely symmetrical. Some of the themes seem a little bit random when we read them. And so we might miss a couple of things that the first Hebrew speakers, it would have been really clear to them. The good thing is, uh, the sections seem to kind of build on some repetition. So as you repeat concepts, you get an idea of what the, what the main ideas really are. And one of the things that's really interesting is that a lot of, uh, the, the Hebrew letters seem to have symbolic meaning uh, each of them has a meaning by itself as a letter. Some of the other speakers who've gone through the summer uh, have mentioned that, that there's a, there's a sort of a symbolic meaning to each one of the letters. So when I think of my ABCs, I don't think about the historical, mythical symbolism of, say, the letter M. I just want to know what it sounds like and how I can spell things with it. Um, in the Hebrew, each of these letters has their own symbolic meaning. And for today, it's interesting that that symbolic meaning kind of seems to set the tone for the content of that section of the psalm. So that brings us to our first passage, which is based on the letter Tzade. Uh, the letter Tzade traditionally is associated with the idea of a humble servant. So you can see the picture here on the screen. Um, it's sort of formed with kind of a blob on top of a, a stick. A diagonal stick that curves around and it forms a base, and then it adds another diagonal stick coming up, you know, in the opposite direction of the first one. So, if you've seen the movie Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade, this is going somewhere. You might remember the part where Indy has to go into the tunnel, he's looking for the Holy Grail. He sees the dead bodies of the soldiers who have gone before him, and he's reading instructions out of his dad's diary about how to safely get through the tunnel. Do you remember what he's reading? That's a little bit later. You're close. Give it a couple more minutes into the movie. Um, it's not Yahweh. He's reading in this diary, only the penitent man shall pass. Only the penitent man shall pass. The penitent man, the penitent man, the penitent man kneels before God. What have you got? You look at this letter, which represents the humble servant, but as Indy drops to his knees, you know, the buzzsaw goes over his head, he's saved, he knelt, he did the right thing. 
<clears throat> I can't quite, you know, when I look at this picture, I can't quite get the pompadour thing going on the back of my head, but you get the sense that, you know, here's somebody with their arms raised to God, and, uh, and, and they're, they're kneeling, they're praying, they're, they're talking, they're, they're humble before God. You know, maybe to you it just looks like a squiggly letter Y. If that's the case, you know, I, I can't help you. But um, with that in mind, with that picture of the kneeling, you know, penitent person with their hands raised before them, with that picture in mind, let's read, if you can move to the next slide, let's read uh, Psalm 119, 137 to 144. In fact, I think I grabbed the wrong translation. I'm just going to read it from the one I have up here so we all stay on the same page. You are righteous, Lord, and your laws are right. The statutes you have laid down are righteous, and they are fully trustworthy. My zeal wears me out, for my enemies ignore your words. Your promises have been thoroughly tested, and your servant loves them. Though I am lowly and despised, I do not forget your precepts. Your righteousness is everlasting, and your law is true. Trouble and distress have come upon me, but your commands give me delight. Your statutes are always righteous. Give me understanding that I may live. Now, doesn't this sound like something a person would say while they're on their knees praying? And what does the penitent believer want? They want to live. They want understanding how to live. I would guess probably very few of us come to God and just blurt out, you know, you're right, God. Everything you do is just. You're faithful and true. I think probably there's a lot more of us who approach God like the psalm writer saying, how am I supposed to live? Help me understand what I'm supposed to do. So let's work our way backward through the psalm from that thought. How am I supposed to live? So the penitent person wants to live, but they can't. What's the problem? In verse 143, we see trouble and distress. Now in my life, and I've shared this a little bit earlier this summer when I've been leading worship, in my life, trouble and distress looks like car repairs. You know, you've heard about our car repairs this last year. Now we've got two weeks to go, and we've got to do the head gaskets on Ethan's car before he goes back to college. So more car repairs. Uh, It looks like college expenses. Um, In two weeks, you know, actually, well, in three weeks, both of our kids are gone and off to college. Uh, It looks like working out of town for the last almost two years. Uh, It looks like medical bills for cancer treatment for Lisa. But what else does verse 143 say? It says, your commands give me delight. So what's a good command to remember when trouble comes, when you're in distress? How about 1 Peter 5, verse 7? Peter echoes Deuteronomy 11 when he says, cast all your anxiety on him, on God. Cast all your anxiety on him because he cares for you. So... When we get the mail and we open up a bill, and the first thing you see in bold is, uh, in 10 days, we will refer this account to a private collection agency. Uh, 
and we looked at the date, and the tenth day was the next day, you know, it's stressful. It kind of hits you. So we prayed, we went to bed, there wasn't really anything else we could do. And the next day, Lisa called, uh, whichever clinic she was being billed by, there have been so many, um, and was told that the notice was actually just due to a software setting. It had hit a certain date, software updated, um, the clinic was still negotiating the fee with our insurance company, um, and uh, they were not going to call the collection agency. We didn't need to sweat it. So that was a good thing. The penitent person wants to live, but they can't. What's the problem? Go backwards to verse 141. I am lowly and despised. I have no significance. You know, how can I live like this? Nobody knows who I am. You ever feel that way? Um, the company I work for has been building this luxury hotel in Jackson for the last two years. It's now fully operational, uh, but to finish the project, we go up to the front desk multiple times every day and request a list of vacant rooms. We then compare that list to our list of remaining touch-ups, and then we work in the rooms that we can get access to. We kind of chip through the punch list in that way. Um, and through this process, I've gotten to know uh, Doug and Juan and a bunch of other people who you know, work at the front desk at the hotel. We see each other many times during the day. So one day, two weeks ago, a very strong chemical sealant was used in the hotel's up-and-coming retail space. Uh, the fumes had gotten into the air return overnight. They were distributed um, throughout about half of the hotel's 100 rooms. And the next morning, people were feeling sick, children were traumatized, uh, vacations were being ruined. And the front desk staff, who had absolutely nothing to do with the problem, were in the line of fire. They were the face that people could talk to. I watched Doug get reamed out by several different guests who treated him like dirt. And uh, as he was, <laughs> and they treated him this way as he's trying to graciously hand out, you know, 50% discounts. Um, and when it was finally my turn to talk to him, I, uh, I thought, I gotta, I gotta work with this guy somehow. I, I reached into my bag of um, quotes from the movie The Princess Bride, and I, I <laughs> I twisted one a little bit, and uh, I walked up to Doug, and I looked him in the eye, and I said, farm boy, fetch me a list. <laughs> uh, he stared at me for a second, and I, I won't repeat his first response to me, that wouldn't be appropriate in this setting, but he started to laugh. And then he started to just spout out quotes from the movie, and we were both laughing. And in, in a pretty short time, you know, he became a person named Doug again. You see, in verse 141, the psalmist recognizes that he may feel insignificant, excuse me, may feel he's insignificant, but it's also that this is no excuse to forget God's precepts. Precepts like Matthew 7, verse 12, where Jesus summarizes the entire Old Testament teaching by saying, in everything, do to others as you would have them do to you. 
treat other people the way you want to be treated, as if you both have significance. So the penitent person wants to live, but they can't. Now what's the problem? Go backwards one more time to verse 139. My zeal wears me out. Uh, maybe another way of saying it is, you know, my passion, it, it overwhelms me. The thing that causes trouble for the psalmist is that the people who are opposing him are also against God. They ignore God's teaching. They ignore God's word. You know, do you ever get angry when you see something that is blatantly wrong? Does that stir something up in you? Uh, when the truth is obscured? You know, think of all the turmoil in this country. In politics, who's telling the truth? With COVID, what's the best advice? Uh, what is actually happening on the Texas border? And then in my home country of Canada, in the past two months, at least 50 churches have been vandalized and many of them burnt to the ground in a two-month period, who's doing this? Why? You know, I could poke into any one of those topics and just get burnt out trying to look for the truth. We live in an age of so much information, and it's so hard to figure out what's true and what's real. Uh, really, any interaction between two live human beings that involves words can lead to misunderstanding and conflict. Um, but it's interesting that in verse 140, it says your promises, God's promises, have been thoroughly tested and your servant loves them. Uh, Leslie Allen, in his commentary on Psalms, translates 140 as saying, your sayings pass all tests for purity. Your servant loves them. It's as if God's words have been refined, so there's nothing left that's unnecessary. There's nothing left in them except truth. And that is such a contrast with the lies and the deceit and the cover-ups and the mishandling of the facts in the world around us. So the penitent person wants to live, but they can't. What's the problem? They face difficulties. They feel insignificant. They are burnt out fighting for the truth. So how do we face this? Again, Allen's commentary translates verse 138, if you look at that one up on the screen, as the terms you have imposed are marked by justice and by complete faithfulness. Wait, did you say imposed? We don't like the sound of that. We don't like things being imposed on us. We don't, being like, we don't like being told what to do. What does he mean by terms? Well, you know, English is kind of a funny language. Um, so the word term actually has a lot of different definitions. Uh, a term can be a descriptive word. Um, somebody in the crowd, what's a medical term for a bruise? Say it louder. Ichymosis. Okay. It's a descriptive word. A term can be a descriptive word. Um, a term can mean a time limit, like a school term. Uh, Ethan and Julia's fall terms or semesters start in two weeks and three weeks from, from today. Um, in this instance, it actually, in this instance of this psalm, it actually means terms and conditions like if you're, uh, if you're taking out a loan. 
you're taking out a loan, say, on a vehicle, you need transportation. Cars are expensive. If you don't have the money, you need a loan from somebody with more money than you. Uh, if you write up, or when you write up the paperwork, there are terms and conditions that clearly state your obligations. You know, they set a monthly payment, and the terms are there to lay out each party's responsibilities and to protect both parties from being taken advantage of. So the penitent person wants to live, but they can't. How do we overcome these difficulties, the insignificance, the burnout? Help needs to come from outside ourselves. Because we don't have the resources on our own to navigate a successful life. God is willing to lend the help, but that puts us in an awkward spot. It makes us look needy. We don't like that. How can we trust that God won't be harsh or take advantage of our weakness? Here the psalmist reminds us of all the characteristics that mark the terms and conditions God you know, imposes on us. They are righteous. They are just. They are true. Why? Because if we finish working backwards through the psalm, we get to the first lines of the passage where we see that it is God's very nature to be just, to be righteous, and to be faithful. If we are willing to sign the agreement, God is more than happy to lend us the resources we need to get through this life. And not only does God have the resources, he has our best interests in mind. So let's move on uh, from the letter Tzadeh to the next one, which is Kof. Uh, from the penitent person, the humble kneeling servant asking how to live in the face of trouble, to the psalmist saying, I need help now. It's like one of those late night infomercials, J.G. Wentworth, I want my money and I want it now. You know, I need help, I am in trouble. It's interesting because uh, in, in ancient Hebrew, apparently, uh, Kof was drawn as a, as a sun on the horizon line, a circle bisected by a, a horizontal line. Um, and it represented, you know, the, the, the daily cycles of the sun, the movement of the seasons. It came to represent time itself. Now, over time, that horizontal line became vertical, and eventually, the line slipped off to the side until it looks to us today kind of like a letter P. Now, I've noticed in my own life, as time passes, things kind of shift and settle and change. And, and so maybe, you know, this didn't come as a surprise to the letter Kof at all. Uh, but let's read the passage with the idea of time in the back of our mind. Starting at 145, um, it says, I call with all my heart, answer me, Lord, and I will obey your decrees. I call out to you, save me, and I will keep your statutes. I rise before dawn and cry for help. I have put my hope in your word. My eyes stay open through the watches of the night that I may meditate on your promises. Hear my voice in accordance with your love. Preserve my life, Lord, according to your laws. Those who devise wicked schemes are near, but they are far from your law. 
Yet you are near, Lord, and all your commands are true. Long ago, I learned from your statutes that you established them to last forever. So in the, in the big picture, we get a sense of urgency uh, as the psalmist writes these lines. But we also see references to, to dawn and nighttime, uh, people who are dream, drawing near or far, the idea of long ago, the idea of forever. There's all these references to time. Um, in the previous section, the psalmist wanted insight on how to face difficulty. Now it's life or death. Something has to happen now. So what happens when we're in danger? Uh, often we're willing to kind of bargain with God, right? Um, in verse 145 and 146, it seems like the writer's saying, save me and I'll promise I'll be good. I'll do what you want me to do. Now I've heard your hunting stories and I see some of you here that are attached to the stories I'm thinking of. Um, when, uh, you know, when a moose has you treed for a long time and you can't go anywhere, you pray. When you see grizzly bear after grizzly bear on your way into hunting camp and you quietly start singing all the praise songs that you can remember the words to. Corey's laughing. <laughs> you need help now. Uh, after that, things get a little bit more sophisticated. Instead of panic, the psalmist is, you know, he's willing to put in the effort. He's, he's getting up early. He's putting his hope in God. He's staying up late, going over God's promises. Um, he's reminding God that God's reputation is kind of on the line. Um, but he's still anxious. And it's as if the humble kneeling servant of the previous passage suddenly looks over his shoulder and realizes, you know, they're here. There's nowhere to run. What happens when we panic? What happens when we're really tired and we panic? What goes through our mind? Um, and, to our, and what happens to our emotions and our ability to think? Okay, so you're, so you're shopping with your kids and you realize one of them is gone. You know, what goes through your mind? Or you're shopping with your kids and you have all your kids, but you get up to the cash register and your wallet isn't there. You know, what, what happens to you? Well, I mean, nowadays you just pull out your phone and kind of wave it at the cash register and you walk out of the store. So maybe that's not the greatest example. But in the olden days, you know, when people used cash and they, they had to carry it in a wallet and they got up to the, to the checkout and there's 20 impatient people behind you and you don't have your, your wallet, you know, uh, you might break out in a sweat, you might drop a few choice words, you, uh, you, you know, you, you frantically start digging through your pockets and, you know, interrogating your kids and, you know, trying to think of all the places you've been in the last hour. You know, where, where's my wallet? Where'd it go? Um, the psalmist is kind of in panic mode. Persecutors, evildoers are right there about to get him. And then it suddenly hits him. Verse 151. These people don't know the truth. They're after me but they don't know the truth. They're far from God's law. Then another thought comes to him in verse 152. No matter how close persecution and trouble get, God is already there. He's already there in the midst of it. Plus, he knows God's truth, and if he thinks about it, he's known it 
for a long time. Uh, I recently read an interesting book called Apocalypse Never, and it talks about how environmental fear-mongering really works against the very change the fear-mongers want to bring about. Uh, and in the book, Greta Thunberg is quoted as saying, I want people to panic about climate change so they'll be motivated to actually do something. The trouble is, we often do our worst thinking when we're in panic mode. Those of you who are our first responders, police officers, firefighters in the medical profession, how well do accident victims deal with their own injuries? Often they do the exact opposite of what's going to be in their best interests. In the midst of his stress, the psalmist reminds himself that God is near, God is true, and this is forever. Does this mean that God guarantees that we'll be rescued from every evil that we encounter? Well, now we apply the, the larger scope of Scripture, you know, think of, and you think of your own life experiences. Um, Daniel's three friends, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, had to actually be thrown into the fiery furnace before God rescued them. Even so, they were willing to stand up for truth, whether God chose to save them or not. The book of Job shows a man who suffered wave after wave of calamity, but God set limits beyond which Satan could not work. Uh, we get another clue in the example of Jesus on the cross, who was briefly forsaken by his father so that he could accomplish the most amazing fact in history, our salvation. So sometimes the answer to our desperate cry for help doesn't exactly look like what we want. But God is already there with us in the midst of whatever trouble comes. We love the stories like Daniel's three friends where God you know, moves in a powerful way. That's exciting to us. Um, but we also have the example, say, of you know, thousands of Christian martyrs during Roman times uh, whose testimony as they were dying completely turned the world, the Roman world, on its head, transformed the world for Christ. And when you read their stories, you realize God was also with, with them in the midst of their trouble. So our passages this morning uh, paint a picture of the penitent believer, kneeling, a kneeling humble servant who loves God, loves his word, uh, delights in God's law. It also gives a glimpse of the urgent believer who's in real trouble, who realizes at the last second that God is already there with them in the midst of the danger. But both of these expressions come from a human point of view, a human perspective. Let me suggest one more perspective. How does God view his relationship with us? Uh, there's a slide for John 15, 1 to 11. Um, John 15, 1 to 11, it, you know, it's not poetry, but it is kind of repetitive. So hang in there as we see the kind of relationship Jesus invites us to have with him. Maybe you've heard this before. I am the vine, and my father is the gardener. He cuts off every branch in me that bears no fruit, while every branch that does bear fruit he prunes so that it will be even more fruitful. You are already clean or pruned because of the word I have spoken to you. Remain in me as I also remain in you. No branch can bear fruit by itself. It must remain in the vine. Neither can you bear fruit unless you remain in me. I am the vine. You are the branches. 
If you remain in me and I in you, you will bear much fruit. Apart from me, you can do nothing. If you do not remain in me, you are like a branch that is thrown away and withers. Such branches are picked up, thrown into the fire and burned. If you remain in me and my words remain in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. This is to my Father's glory, that you bear much fruit, showing yourselves to be my disciples. As the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Now remain in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will remain in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commands and remain in his love. I have told you this so that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be complete." Just as in the psalm, the penitent believer still has commandments to keep. Just as in the psalm, trouble and adversity still face us in life as God uses these things to prune what is healthy from our lives, what is unhealthy from our lives, sorry. Um, But the focus is abiding, being close to Jesus all the time. We are not expected to live this life on our own strength. We are expected to be a little branch that is connected to the solid trunk, the source of life. Being connected to the source of life gives us strength to face trouble, gives us identity when we feel insignificant, lets our passions flow out of truth instead of getting worn out searching for it. When the psalmist gl- what the psalmist glimpsed in his panic and found comfort in, the realization that God is near, <coughs> excuse me, that God is near, This is the main focus of what Christian life is supposed to look like, being near to God. My last thought might seem like a bit of a tangent, um, but it's my honest reaction to the text. About five years or more ago, I spent several months reading this passage, reading John 15, two, three, four times a week. I read it often. For several months. Honestly, I, I still don't get it. And it might be because I often seem to act more like a Stoic than a Christian. When, uh, when Lisa's cancer showed up, my approach was, you know, take the meds, practice good nutrition, try to balance the wisdom of the doctors with the experience of people who've been through cancer, uh, and just carry on. When cars break down, and they do, just buy more parts and install them. You know, um, work is sometimes a grind, but the health insurance has been such a huge help. I just keep showing up at work each day. And it's not wrong to be calm and rational and balanced, but it's not okay to simply try and do that on your own strength. That kind of misses the whole point of Jesus' sacrifice on the cross to restore a relationship with our Creator and experience the joy of what it means for believers to have the Holy Spirit living inside of them. Uh, It is interesting that Jesus and the Roman senator Seneca, uh, a chief teacher of Stoicism, were contemporaries. They lived at the same time period of history. But in the Roman Empire, Stoicism could not compete with the vitality of the relationship offered by Christianity, and it eventually kind of fell by the wayside. 
So be the penitent believer, be the humble servant, the, the tzade, uh, who loves God's words. When the kof, the time of trouble comes, cry out to God for help. But also be the follower of Christ, who's been given the Holy Spirit so we can abide with our Heavenly Father, connected to the source of life, keeping the commandments out of love for our Savior, living a life full of joy. That's my hope for us this morning. Now, they, uh, they say a sermon doesn't have to be long to be good, but maybe it's just good that this one wasn't long. Um, <laughs> let's pray. Father, thanks for hearing our prayers. Thanks for giving us true words in a world of chaos. Thanks for walking with us, for, for wanting to be near to us, for loving us that much. Uh, we thank you for the sacrifice you made to make this possible. We're going to celebrate this, that this morning as we take communion together. And I just pray, Father, that that would, would sink into our hearts and that that would change us. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.